Hello, it's Thursday 19th of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to our annual Travel and Tourism Wishlist show, looking ahead to a pivotal year in 2023 with our guest, Karen Nguyen, Group Editor of TTG Asia Group. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So here it is, our travel and tourism wish list show that we do every year. And this year, we're delighted to be joined by Karen Yue, group editor of TTG Asia Group, who's based in Singapore. Hannah, Karen, and I have compiled a list of 15 travel trends, developments, and initiatives that we'll be watching most closely in 2023. Yes, we'll be discussing each individual wish list item in the round. But firstly, let's welcome Karen back to the show. Hi, Karen. Happy New Year and Gongsi Fatai. How are you? And how's the start of 2023 been for you so far? Hello, Gary. Hello, Hannah. Thank you for getting me back on the show. Um, the first year, the, the first uh, few days of the, the year doesn't feel like um, it's a new year, doesn't it? It's, it's like a very fast continuation from where we were last year. And um, the holidays are just packed so tightly together. It doesn't feel very much like Chinese New Year is coming around the corner. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So let's get cracking then um, with this list. So we've got 15 um, kind of wishes and trends. And we thought we'd start off with you, Karen. And um, I, I think this is more, more, more a wish, I suppose. But let's, let's see. Um, greater accountability for sustainable tourism claims. Uh, do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we came off for uh, three years of talks about how the travel and tourism industry has got to be a lot more sustainable post-lockdown and what companies are doing to be so. And we've actually seen some good progress, right? You know, sustainability is no more just defined as minimizing single-use plastics, thank goodness. You know, more organizations are recognizing the full spectrum of sustainability as defined by the UN. And they have specific programs to address, you know, specific goals. They are also demonstrating their commitment to sustainability by setting up specialized departments or hiring topical experts to strategize and accomplish those goals. So, you know, now with all hot topics attracting scrutiny, it's no surprise that many people are then wondering if our industry is truly walking as much as we are talking. So if, you know, now it's, it's, it's really truly the time that sustainability measure and accountability get more attention. And I expect this to continue to gain importance this year. And we're already seeing some effort in this this uh, in this area. You know, organizations like Global Sustainable Tourism Council provides accreditation programs and training on sustainability guidelines and enforcement. And then we also have a Travelist Coalition, which is also working towards the same goal, um, which is you know, unifying sustainability reporting so that all the good work that this industry is doing is transparent and independently uh, validated and you know communicated to the traveling public. Uh, so, so that um, is some progress in terms of accountability. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think you're so right that that we've now moved beyond that point, like you say, Karen, of that single-use plastic. Um, but now it's yeah, how how can we actually how can we really measure what is sustainable and what isn't, and how how can you hold people like you say accountable? And if a company says yes, we are sustainable, well, go on then prove it. Give us, give us your figures. You know, let's no, no greenwashing here, please. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it's, it's, it's the term sustainability as well, isn't it? It's such a broad church. It's such a big umbrella. Trying to define what that actually means um, and how that's going to be applicable through, through this year and, and way into the future. You know, we, sustainability, climate impact, you know, all these things are important. Plastics as well. You know, I mean, all these things come together. 
And so that leads into number two, Hannah, um, which is one of my suggestions, and that's managing waste management, which is another big issue. And we've seen this um, in the travel and tourism industry, particularly it was happening before the pandemic. Certainly there's a, a big focus on this now. And waste management can be everything. You know, that, that's food. That's the way uh, water is distributed from, from buildings, from hotels, from everything like that. Um, how do we tackle waste management? Because this is a big issue, not just in the tourism industry, but, but everywhere. Um, and you start to see some of the surveys of young people around Southeast Asia in particular. Um, they actually state that, that waste management now is, is a particular issue because of the damage that it's doing to our rivers, to our waterways and to our oceans as well, as well as the land. You know, a lot of this toxic effluent, uh, you know, that, that, that affects the land as well. So this is a big issue for this year and, and into the future. Actually, I feel that um, um, food waste is a big issue in Asia and it's one of the areas where we can do a lot more to, to tackle that at least, if not the others, you know. Um, in Asia especially, it's very customary to demonstrate hospitality with an overflowing supply of good food, right? So, you know, in, in 2014, um, I wrote an analysis on food waste in business events, and I found a study that claimed that food waste was one of the highest streams of solid waste for events. Um, a single event could, can produce, um, for example, a 6,000 packs congress with a no-show of 20% for an evening function, resulting in 1,200 meals being wasted. And then there's also Asia's love for buffets. While hotels and restaurants could salvage food that were not served, you know, by channeling them to you know, staff canteens or donating them to charity organizations, depending on local laws. But once food actually gets onto the diner's plates, they are destined for the uh, garbage bins. So you know, if you could at least get rid of maybe uh, buffets first and more responsible dining arrangements at uh, business events, we could, we could already kill one portion of that, that waste management fields. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think it's going to be the, the business events side that may really drive this for hotels, because I think we are going to see this increasing awareness amongst um, business event managers um, from the corporate side, you know, asking hotels and putting them on the spot and saying, what are you doing with, with the food waste and what's happening with that? And, you know, demanding to see those policies. Um, one one uh, conference that I went to last year um, which is the Adventure Travel World Summit that I went to in Lugano. Um, it was pretty interesting. I can't remember if I've shared this on the, the pod before, but it was um, Switzerland Tourism were essentially trying to make the event the most sustainable event that they have ever had. And so basically all of the food, yes, it was a buffet style um, for lunch and the coffee breaks and things, um, but they repurposed it. So they would take it away um, overnight and kind of change it up, use those same ingredients and make something new out of it the next day. Um, but you would never have known. It was only until we had a chat with them and then they told us that and you say, oh, right, wow. Um, that's, I think that's where you know tourism um, businesses need to go is really that reimagination of what can we do um, with this food waste as well as obviously reducing it. Yeah, it's a good idea. So let's move on to number three, Hannah. This, is, this one pops up every year and also during the year. This is your choice. Um, target setting, when will they stop? Tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many times our listeners have had to listen to us, Gary, um, banging on about this. And I, I feel a bit like a broken record now. But yeah, just just governments just keep setting targets. And the, the amazing one that, of course, came out last week uh, was the tourism ministry's aim to reach 80 million international tourists by, I think it was 2027 or 2028, um, which is double the amount for 2019. And this is kind of staggering, given that the, the whole way through the pandemic, they've been talking about 
the fact that they want to uh, have quality tourists over quantity, that they really want to position Thailand as a sustainable um, tourism industry. And we've been saying all along, haven't we, Gary, that yes, governments are saying right now they want quality over quantity. But when the time comes, are they going to walk that talk? And it doesn't seem so. It's very easy to say you want quality tourists when you have no tourists. I think there are other KPIs to aim for, right? So we can look at average room rate, uh, tourism receipts, and even uh, average length of stay. But I also think that uh, uh, maybe leisure tourism could take a leaf from a uh, business events industry. So often whenever um, a destination wins um, a business event, they will look at the economic value of that event and as well as the legacies that created for the local communities. So perhaps uh, governments should start looking at um, you know, could could we measure instead how household income or literacy levels have risen for villagers participating in village tourism, or if um, um, standard of living has improved for uh, workers in in travel and tourism? So maybe those those uh, KPIs would make more sense. Yeah, I love that absolutely, Karen. I mean, and, you know, you look at governments like Indonesia that are always having targets for children um, stunting and trying to reduce that. I mean, all of that could be linked, couldn't it? You know, if, if they're pushing tourism villages at the same time. I think this is also one of the areas, and there are many in the industry, we make a lot of assumptions in the travel industry. But this is really where governments, the travel industry and consumers, travelers themselves, just, just diverge. Because when governments or when the tourism industry talks about target setting, multi-millions of visitors, all you're essentially doing is you're ascribing travelers as numbers. And, you know, that really rankles with travelers themselves. They don't think of themselves as numbers. They're not. They're individual travelers. Um, but everything has to be aggregated. And as we saw last year, you know, aggregating and making forecasts, you know, the, the, the rebound, let's be honest, in the region last year was pretty weak. Most countries didn't reach their, their targets. So perhaps it isn't so much about setting now. It's actually about reestablishing the industry and making it more closer um, to the people that travel rather than pushing them away and treating them as numbers. Absolutely. So let's move away from my bugbear uh, and go back to you, Karen. Um, and so this was one of your your picks, which is the evolving role that national tourism organizations should play. And, you know, as they're doing more than just destination promotion and industry regulation, you know, they should be providing structures that support local enterprises, push for responsible tourism development um, and operations in the private sector. So tell us more. So the challenges of the pandemic actually forced many NGOs to put uh, destination marketing aside for a moment um, in the two initial uh, problematic years and instead to focus on ensuring this industry players survive and are ready for eventual recovery. Now we are moving into uh, recovery now and those those uh, focuses are actually still uh, quite entrenched. So for example, Singapore Tourism Board's um, Singapore Reimagined Marketing Program uh, offers financial aid uh, to bring qualified marketing ideas to fruition, while its Tourism Careers Hub uh, provide training for tourism professionals as well as job matching for individuals who are keen on, on joining our industry. Um, over in Indonesia, the, the Tourism Ministry has a project to raise the income of villages through tourism, while uh, Penang Tourism Board is helping residents in lesser known districts develop a tourism forte. Um, and there's an even better example of how this uh, NTO shift should happen, and this example lies outside of Asia. Tourism Vancouver Island announced um, in April last year that it would shift away from tourism marketing to operate as a non-profit social enterprise, and it will invest all its revenue back into social goals. 
Now, I feel that if destinations start to get serious about using tourism as a vehicle for good, the role of the NTOs will have to change in this manner. You know, businesses and communities that can benefit from tourism will then get all the help they need to play in a big pool with the big boys who have the big uh, marketing guns. That's so interesting. I hadn't heard that about Vancouver. That's, um, yeah, operating as a non-profit social enterprise. That's really changing, changing the narrative, isn't it? It's changing the narrative about what tourism can do, really. So, Gary, let's move on then to your next pick, which is demographics. How can the industry deal with this growing polarization between Gen Zs and seniors and every demographic in between? Yeah, I think this is quite an interesting one, particularly as we see the, the return of Chinese travelers over the coming months. You know, China is such a huge market. It's a huge country. It's 1.41 billion people. And you really can't just segment people into Gen Zs or seniors. The country is too big for that. The markets, each individual market is too big for that. Um, and it's a problem we have in Asia, I think, because we do tend to assume that you know, there's, there are labels that we use. So we use Chinese travelers, we use Indian travelers, we use Gen Zs, we use seniors, we use family travelers, business travelers. Uh, and, and that assumes that everybody acts in the same way. And so we've got to look at the demographics of this huge region that we're in. I think it's widely agreed that the recovery of Asia a Pacific for travel and tourism this year will be stronger. You know, we're going to start to all the pieces of the jigsaw are back in place now. All the countries are reopened. It's a huge region, uh, so much diversity. Um, but we really have to look at how we're going to target specific tourism products, specific tourism services in future in a much better way. Because I think as we've as as people are coming out of the pandemic, and we see this from China after three years of not being able to travel, people have a very very clear idea of what they want and what they don't want. But I'm not quite sure that the travel industry is still aware um, of, of how different preferences and uh, travel behaviors are going to be. Um, so how do we get a better um, handle on the different demographics that are going to be coming out of not just China, but the rest of the region across this year? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think it, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of what we've said a few times, Gary, is that it's very hard to know right now if things are long term trends, are they short term trends, are things here to stay and so it's really hard to kind of draw those conclusions um but for sure there needs to be more sophisticated marketing like you say along demographic lines along interest lines and rather than just a block uh you know malaysia truly asia <laughs> or amazing thailand right and it needs to go beyond that and, and i agree with you and, and it can be done i mean a lot of the work that i do is in is in the consumer sphere and you look at how consumer brands particularly fast moving consumer goods and also luxury brands they're very good at, um, at segmenting who it is they're targeting for each particular campaign now i know it's more difficult in travel and tourism because you're you know, if you've got a fast-moving consumer good, that's something that people are going to buy quite regularly across the year. It's different with travel and tourism because people will only be traveling once, twice, maybe three times a year. And it's a much bigger decision in terms of how you're going to make your, your travel trip. But you've still got to use data a lot better. You've still got to use creativity much better. And you've still got to zone in much more closely, as you said, Hannah, away from just generic marketing, but look very, very specifically at who it is that you want to attract um, for specific products for specific services and specific parts of a destination. So the next pick is one of mine. Um, and this is more a question, I think, and a, a, a wait and see. Um, that's the decoupling of this appetite for tourism, this demand for tourism away from the economy. Um, and so right now we have this situation in the US where um, the economy is slowing down. 
but travel demand right now doesn't seem to be. I mean, yesterday United Airlines was predicting that by the end of this year, it will have quadrupled its profits. You know, they are seeing a re- they are really, really bullish on this year, despite the fact that we know that inflation is rising, the economy is not doing as well. That's all going to come and bite. Um, so I think for me, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out in Southeast Asia. Are we also going to see this decoupling, you know, this Yes, the economy is going to slow down. I, I don't think we're going to go into recession here in Southeast Asia, but certainly inflation is at a high. There is you know, issues around food security in certain countries as well um, and the food supply chain. But are we going to still see people spending um, despite that? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's interesting that you picked on the airlines because if you look at, uh, for example, Qantas, if you look at the, the market buoyancy on Qantas stocks at the moment, it's really, really high. I think if, you, if you'd invested a year ago on a Qantas stock, you're probably up about 30% and, and, and they're going up at the moment. There is real sentiment that, that airlines like Qantas are going to have a, a big rebound year. There's two elements to that, I think, Hannah. One is not just the fact that it's about demand because it isn't just about demand anymore. It's about yield. Uh, airlines are raising their prices and they're actually becoming more profitable because um, they're just managing yields much better than they did before. They learned a lot from the pandemic. So that's one of the issues which is kind of entrenched. But in terms of consumer demand, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a make or break year. I mean, it really is interesting when you look at the, we're starting to see, aren't we, the, the visitor numbers and the visitor spend coming through from last year from the countries in the region. I thought Singapore's was the most interesting because uh, you know, it, it basically hit its target of what it wanted to reach around about 6 million just, to, just above. But its yields, it's actually its tourism spend was quite strong simply because, as you said, Hannah, it's inflation. You know, people are spending more because it's more expensive to travel and it's more expensive to spend in destinations now. I guess in terms of the, the, the decoupling from inflation and potential recession, all that kind of thing, we won't really see that until the second quarter. So the second and third quarters will probably be the the real test bed of, of, of how the global tourism economy is going to move towards the throughout this year, particularly towards the fourth quarter. But, you know, in America, even though they are talking about higher profits, um, they are still worried about demand in the middle portion of the year. So, yeah, making making predictions at the moment is quite difficult. But, you know, the headwinds are definitely there, I think. Anna. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think this year is going to be a year of no uh, no firm trends. Um, it's a very unusual year because more people are getting out um, uh, back to travel, having that freedom again. So even if they are concerned about um, income uh, stability uh, for the next uh, year or so, uh, they would still have some savings for travel and they, they are still you know, looking to satisfy the lack of travel over the last uh, three or four years, depending on where they are from. So the kind of travel uh, demand that we're seeing against um, economic uh, uh, issues and forecasts. It's, it's just, uh, um, I think it's going to be unusual for us um, for this year at least. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that as well, Karen. I think it's it's difficult, as you say, it's going to be an abnormal year, number two, because last year was a, was a very abnormal year. It was a very compressed year last year. We only really had sort of three quarters of the year in most of Southeast Asia, one quarter of it in much of Northeast Asia. And this year, at least we'll, we should get a full year run. You know, there, there is in the background a lot of uh, economic issues around the world that are going to impact our region. But, you know, there is the, the, the other angle that, you know, uh, travel within the region, intra-Asian travel, intra-ASEAN travel, um, you know, could off the back of that um, become a little bit stronger. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see, Hannah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Back to you, Karen. And this is another pick that I think is is also quite close to my heart, and that's repositioning the tourism profession after this great resignation and seeing what kind of positive impact that also has had on employment conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, the great resignation, if you still remember, it was a term of nightmares for many tourism uh, tour- team leaders, uh, business owners, and even HR managers throughout 2021 and 2022. And it was especially worrisome for travel and tourism because talent acquisition and retention was already a challenge for us in better times. And this lack of stability in our industry during the pandemic turned even more people off. You know, but this, this predicament has uh, presented an opportunity to reset the the hiring and retention conditions for travel and tourism professionals. The pandemic has altered people's expectations of how life should be. You know, we want greater work-life balance, uh, more fulfillment in what we do, uh, clear career pathways, and also an employer that we can be proud of, you know. And that shapes what employers have to do to engage with these people, as well as to attract and retain them. So we've seen um, one example, for example, ACOS uh, Work Your Way program uh, promises open pathways to travel and work uh, around the region, uh, you know, advanced career development uh, through the ACOS Academy and flexible uh, work ar- arrangements for all staff. You know, some of these things, uh, the company actually said they are, they are revolutionary features, unusual features that they've never thought of uh, before, the, before the pandemic. So, and also in a recent conversation with um, Hospitality School uh, EHL, I learned that travel and tourism companies are working with um, the institution to devise long-term and customized upskilling and reskilling programs for the staff across all levels. And this is a great example that shows the concept of lifelong learning is taking root in companies. And it is no longer the sole responsibility of an individual to upgrade himself if he wants to keep the job. You know? So now, of course, you know, improving the, the employment conditions of the entire spectrum of travel and tourism professionals is important for the industry to rebuild its manpower uh, post lockdown. But I also see that this is even more crucial for the service frontliners. In some Asian societies, service isn't recognized as a career. For many, it's a holiday job or a, a temporary plug um, to tolerate um, before a better job comes along. And it does not help that there are customers who disregard service frontliners as servants. So the manpower shortage across um, hospi- hospitality businesses have further worn down patients and we have seen a lot more angry complaints of poor or slow service flying fast across uh, social media as well as the abuse of service frontliners. So if our industry wants uh, to build and retain a proud um, and efficient frontline army, um, an, improve of, uh, an improved uh, public perception of service as a career uh, must uh, is important. By sending a louder and more positive message about the value of service and the career prospects uh, it brings, the industry will also impress upon consumers that service is, is not servitude. Yeah, 100% agree with that, Karen. It's, it's a big challenge, a huge challenge. As we know, it's not just a challenge in our region. This is a challenge worldwide. I was back in the UK uh, over Christmas and New Year. Very, very similar problem in terms of shortage uh, in hospitality, in, in restaurants and bars. Very, very difficult situation. I do think one of the things we can, we can we can look at it from two ways, and one we do have to look at it positive. We have to find solutions, and we have to find solutions quite quickly. But I also think all the industries, particularly the airline industry, the airport industry, and the hotel industry, has to ask itself some quite difficult questions about why it is that a lot of people left the industry and don't want to come back. You know, is that just about terms and conditions? Is that about pay? Is that about long hours? Is that simply, as you said, Karen, which I think is a good point about work-life balance, um, you know, and just finding more family time again. 
know, there could be a lot of reasons. Also, we know in a lot of parts of our region, uh, workers are, tend to be quite casual, so they may have gone back to, to where they live and just decided not to go back to the big cities. I think we're going to have to find the root of the problem uh, as well as uh, some, some positive ways forward. I agree with the both of you. <laughs> so moving on, and this is one of your picks, Gary. Um, payments, e-payments, and CBDCs. What happens next for the travel sector? What happens next in every mm. sector, I think. Payments and fintech, fintech are absolutely changing everything, particularly in our region, Hannah and Karen. We know that digital banking, digital finance, uh, digital-only banks, you know, this is the way that uh, we are moving. We're moving very, very quickly in digitized economies right now. Everything from shopping online to, to doing your banking, your insurance, your finance, you know, it's all becoming integrated into apps now. And I think this is quite an interesting... Uh, I think we're leading the world in Asia on this, and China is probably at the forefront as well. Um, but e-payments aren't just e-payments anymore. It's much of a much bigger integrated financial system. And this will actually leverage into tourism because as we go into any store or any hotel or any restaurant now and you look, and you look at the, the payments offerings that you have, there are so many. Uh, and that's confusing. That's difficult for, for retailers. That's difficult for tourism businesses to, to manage and facilitate all those different payment formats. Now, we will see over time, we will see a lot of consolidation. We will see e-payments probably being eaten up and some of them will disappear. But then there's another leverage to that. And that's the fact that a lot of governments now are creating their own digital currencies, central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. Hasn't really had a lot of coverage, but it will do this year. You watch. Um, China's leading the way on this. China actually has its already its own virtual version of its own currency. Um, India and Indonesia both said last year that they're moving forward very, very quickly on this. Singapore too. Every country in the region is looking at their own CBDC. Now, the interesting thing about that, it doesn't really change money. CBDCs are just a virtual version or a digital version of your own currency. But what it will mean is that all the facilitation in the back end and the way that payments are actually uh, facilitated will change. So it will mean that a lot of these smaller e-payment apps that can't really pay their way will just fall, fall by the wayside. Another overlay that we have, I guess, at the moment in the industry is buy now, pay later. That came from the, the consumer industry. And there's a lot of concerns about that because in many countries, buy now, pay later at the moment is currently unregulated and it needs to be regulated um, to protect consumers. So I think payments this year, Hannah, could well be um, the number one big issue for everybody. It's going to cause a lot of consternation. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we, we talked a lot that, about that through the China lens on our, our last episode with you and Wolfgang. Um, that, yes, that if, if you're not connected to the right China payment systems, it's going to be very difficult for you to welcome the Chinese market. So I think absolutely this is going to be on the top of a lot of travel stakeholders' minds this year for sure. Absolutely. So let's move on to number nine, Hannah. And this is one of yours. And this is the unpredictability of source markets. This is a good one because this is a very hot point for, for 2023. Yeah, I mean, and the example that I am giving at the moment is this, this one that probably Singapore and Thailand never saw coming. And this is the fact that India put testing requirements on travelers coming from Singapore or Thailand or even transiting um, through Singapore and Thailand um, before they re-enter India. Now, of course, India, right, and I mean, that, that's in the light of, of course, China reopening. Um, and I, I guess their logic is that Chinese tourists are more likely to visit Singapore and Thailand. Therefore, the risk is higher from those countries. Um, but what I think that really goes to show is right now, Thailand is one of the top markets into in, um, one of the top markets into Thailand, one of the top markets into Singapore. Um, 
who would have thought that China reopening could upset that, right? And I, I think it just shows that how the world is very interconnected and there's a lot of underlying politics, a lot of different tensions that are all playing into this. And it's like we keep saying, everything is very difficult to forecast. It's very difficult to predict at the moment. And, you know, the, the drop of a hat, a source market that you depended on could, you know, slow down for a reason that's entirely outside of your control. 100% agree. There is huge volatility. volatility. And, you know, the, as you said, Hannah, the underlying point of this is the pandemic itself, it's, it's made everybody more cautious, it's made um, politics and it's made travel particularly more political. Um, how this resolves itself, I guess we will find out. My feeling is that this will actually settle down. I think, as we said last week, Hannah, I think the, the big issue with China reopening is the fact that it reopened its borders in the midst of a massive surge of infections across the country. You know, its infection rate was still going up, which is not what you would normally expect of a country reopening. I think once that settles down, once we start seeing more sequencing of Chinese um, cases and that the fact if there isn't a new variant, my, my feeling is that by the second quarter, I think it will take time. Most of this will settle down and hopefully uh, the travel and tourism industry can restabilize again. What, what, what do you think, Karen? Yeah, I agree that this is an unusual trend um, that uh, may not stay um, as things settle down, like you said. Um, but of course, in the back of my mind, I'm also just thinking that now that governments have had a taste of how um, they could impose um, certain restrictions or differentiated measures, they call it, uh, for specific source markets um, in the event of an emergency, we might actually see them uh, bringing back um, on and off such uh, requirements whenever something services. Yeah, that's a good point. I think so. I think you made that point last time you were on the show, um, Karen, a few a few months ago, and I, oh, yes, I agree. I, it. It I, don't think I don't think the situation has changed. No, I agree uh, crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> um, so next one is one of your picks, um, Karen, which is um, intensified tourism marketing as travel resumes, and the fact that yes, it is very exciting. But that messaging is going to be dominated by destinations who can afford those massive marketing campaigns and not necessarily those countries who have great experiences to offer and a tourism community that is desperate for recovery. Um, so talk us through some of these new campaigns. Um, well, you don't have to be a travel reporter to know that you know, destination marketing is on a roll. Um, apart from numerous press releases every day about this new hotel or that new tour, there are also countless ads on different platforms for special deals for booking now, staying longer, or for that upcoming festival long holiday. You know, it's, it's getting very hard for me to, to, to maintain any savings, Hannah, because of, of all these ads. And I'm, very, I'm, a, I'm a favorite uh, customer of all marketers, actually. Uh, no, these communications provide plenty of destination ideas for both travel curators and, and tra uh, travelers. And they also help to stimulate actual purchase, which is what uh, destinations and businesses actually really need right now. We saw how travel marketing picked up speed the whole of last year. And this will only intensify now that even more travel barriers are lifted and more flights are reinstated. So some of um, the interesting uh, tourism campaigns that have come out uh, last year, um, I think my favorite would have to be, or rather the cutest in my book uh, is Tourism Australia's Come and Say Good Day uh, global campaign. So this was launched last October. And if you remember, it, it, it's, uh, it features two CGI characters, one kangaroo and the other being a toy uh, unicorn. Um, and two of them would just go through some of of Australia's uh, most iconic uh, landmarks. And um, um, another one that, that's also, uh, that, that sticks with me is uh, Singapore Tourism Board's collaboration with Charlie Puth in a destination video that shows some of, in some of the uh, interesting places in Singapore uh, through his eyes as he searches for you know, the sounds of the, the country. 
So these two are quite quite uh, interesting. Um, and then from from 2021, there was also a very cheeky um, um, campaign by Switzerland Tourism uh, through the very odd pairing of uh, Robert De Niro and uh, Roger Federer, if you both remember that. Um, I love that one. Yeah, that, that was quite interesting. Huh? They, they actually have a new one with uh, Anne Hathaway. I love her, but I can't say that it has it, it, it got the same vibe and the same um, laughs out of me uh, compared to uh, De Niro and, and, and Federer. Now, if you realize all these campaigns I spoke of, how much would these cost to, to produce, right? The, the big guns, um, the celebrities and, and, and the, the money that goes into it. And therefore, that leads me to, to this, this thought, you know, um, how how will um, 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 promising destinations that have lost tourism leadership or marketing budget during the pandemic, or maybe through a crisis of their own, or perhaps small homegrown hospitality businesses that have interesting ideas but lack the means to go big with um, peer marketing, how would these people and these these organisations and these destinations compete with those that are really uh, well versed in the marketing game? So you know, unless unless travelers consciously seek out experiences in off the beaten track destinations, most will likely just gravitate to where the bulk of travel reviews and tour packages are coming from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when, I mean, when you you said that immediately, destinations like Laos came up, and I was thinking about Laos. I was thinking about Cambodia, um, and the fact that yeah, they, they've got so much going on there, but are still seeing very little tourism. Uh, even even Vietnam, though perhaps that's related to, to visa issues. So for sure, it's it's the the person who can shout the loudest is going to get the uh, attention. I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it, just a bit of a quick plug here, Hannah, um, for our new China Outbound Tourism Handbook 2023, which comes out this weekend. One of the issues that we've looked at in in China is we've looked very closely at how consumers and travelers actually consider um, tourism marketing and tourism board marketing and, and how they actually view it. And increasingly, I mean, one of the, the, the most important ways to market into the China market, uh, into, particularly to younger people now, is, is something where people can make recommendations. So recommendation marketing is very, very important. But recommendation tends to be consumer to consumer, peer to peer now. Um, the influencer market is dropping off. The, the key influencer market is sort of dissipated because I think it's just been oversaturated. And there's also, you see some surveys as well, particularly amongst younger Chinese travelers, they think that tourism videos are just simply advertising. They don't really believe them. And so what they're trying to look for now is, is more peer-to-peer -peer recommendation, peer-to-peer -peer content, user-generated content, and how you can actually, as a tourism board or as a destination marketer, you can use that to your benefit. You have to be a bit more clever. Um, it can't just be about big umbrella advertising. It has to be much more segmented and marketed. But I think as we see the Chinese tourists come back, uh, recommendation marketing is, is, is my tip for this year. Nice. So I will move on to um, another moan, really, I think. Uh, <laughs> a wish, and I think, again, this has probably been on the wish list for the last couple of years, which is um, coordinated government communications and less knee-jerk reactions. Um, and probably a lot of listeners can guess what I'm um, thinking about right now, but it, it's Thailand. You know, this <laughs> this decision of Thailand that they were going to implement uh, fully vaccinated traveler rule and then the, the day that it's meant to be implemented, rolling it back and it, it creates a mess. It makes tourists feel cross, especially if they were booked to, you know, to fly in. It makes tourism providers feel cross as well. Um, and it's just not well thought through. It's not well communicated. And I don't know why they keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a bit of a problem here in Malaysia, haven't we, recently, Hannah? We've had this issue in Langkawi, 
um, of the new, new the new state government in Langkawi saying that it wants to in future remove alcohol from Langkawi. The, the, the federal government saying no, this is our decision um, and we're not going to do that because Langkawi is a duty-free island and that's what attracts tourists to the island. But you've got this mix and match issue and this one has been going on for quite a while but it's come to a head again. Uh, and this is just really where it's, it, it just confuses travellers, doesn't it? It just makes travellers and tourists look think well, maybe I'll look somewhere else. If I don't know, if I can't be guaranteed that when I go to that destination, whichever one it is, um, that the terms and conditions that I thought when I signed up for, when I made my booking are going to be in place, then I'll just go somewhere else. And, you know, the customer decides. And this year, particularly in 2023, it's going to be such a competitive, such a fiercely contested market to attract travelers, um, whether they're from China, whether they're from around the region, from Japan, uh, from Australia, from within Southeast Asia, or from further afield. Uh, you just don't want to be giving yourself problems that you just don't need to have. And I think, you know, this, this issue keeps recurring, doesn't it, Hannah, is the fact that government communications get in the way of what the travel industry is actually trying to do. It, and it just makes their, their job much, much harder. Next up, the metaverse and mixed reality marketing. So I have, you've said bluff reality, or is the jury still out? I mean, I'm very skeptical, but you're a bit more hopeful, aren't you? Um, I don't know if I'm more hopeful. I mean, this actually came from a discussion that Karen and I were having when we were putting together our part of the list. You know, this is in, in Asia Pacific, particularly metaverse and mixed reality, marketing, gaming, gamification, all that kind of thing is a big thing. And when you go to the rest of the world and you talk about it, particularly in North America and Europe, there is a huge amount of skepticism about it, about whether it actually is bluff, whether it is reality. And also, I think, a, a, a lower understanding of just how important this is for younger generations, younger generations who grew up with gaming, grew up with alternative worlds and landscapes, and, and, and travelers becoming part of that. What the solution is, Hannah, I'm not entirely sure. Karen, I know that you're a little bit skeptical as well, but we are seeing, aren't we? We're starting to see metaverse and mixed reality marketing and aug augmented marketing coming into travel and tourism, and we will see much, much more of it. Um, how it gets taken up, you know, and it's costly, it's not cheap to do. Um, but it is going to appeal to the younger segment of the market, perhaps not older segments. I, I, I wonder what you two guys think, because it's definitely going to happen. It's happening in the consumer sphere, especially. A lot of brands are doing metaverse uh, marketing right now, and some of it is quite successful. But for travel and tourism, it's a bigger ask. So, so what do you two guys think? Hmm. No, you know, in, in theory, marketing in metaverse could work. Um, it is an, an additional channel to engage with a population of consumers who actually enjoy life uh, online and in an alternate universe, as you mentioned. Um, and it seems workable, even for a skeptical me, it seems work workable if, it's, if there is a physical experience or tangible product tied to metaverse. So one good example is when Norwegian Cruise Line entered the metaverse last year. It auctioned off six NFT art uh, pieces that are symbolic to its Prima class ships. So the buyer of the, the first piece uh, um, was was awarded a, a, a balcony stateroom on one of the ships' uh, first uh, US voyage. So that's where you see a bit of a, a, an alternate universe tied to a, a, phys the, a physical reality. So that for me works. But if it's just paying money to experience a virtual destination, uh, I, would, I would say no. And, and also because, you know, um, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember Second Life, what happened to Second Life? Yeah, I agree. I think Second Life is, is a good sample case of, of how it just, just dissipated. And in fact, some of the, the lower grade metaverse that we're seeing at the moment isn't really much different to, that, to, to Second Life. But, but I do think we're going to see much more sophistication, particularly as we see the rollout of 5G and then perhaps by the end of the decade, 6G. Um, I think, you know, metaverse and mixed reality marketing are, 
are definitely here to stay. Um, but how we actually incorporate that, I think, is going to be a little bit difficult. So let's move on, Karen. And this is your your last pick, which is a, a continued movement towards truly local experiences that will filter revenue to the sons and daughters of the country. So this actually really kicked off uh, when travel and tourism businesses had to turn to domestic market for survival. If you remember the word pivot, right? A lot of pivoting was happening during the height of the pandemic, and to attract local co- uh, consumers, uh, travel and tourism businesses had to get very creative. So they gave fresh spins on familiar sights and sounds. You know, they, they featured local artisans as well as disappearing crafts and traditions, and they spotlighted locally made everything. Um, just to attract uh, the very uh, skeptical local people who think they know everything about their own destination. Now, that movement actually coincided with consumer studies stating that post-lockdown travellers wanted more authentic and unique destination experiences while giving back to the uh, local community. So to me, that's a perfect match. And it's one that ensures that every destination offers something truly unique for visitors. And that's the whole point of travelling, right? So examples, we saw um, Indonesia's Ministry of Tourism harnessing the power of the country's uh, village community to attract urban folks. So there was this um, tourism village development project that helps to certify sustainable tourism villages. Um, The project also worked on um, raising the literacy skills of village operators and it helped to develop um, tourism activities to attract our people to come and stay. So, so far, this project has uh, curated 100 eligible uh, villages and the ministry actually hopes to add um, 150 more by uh, by next year. Um, Penang, um, I also mentioned that um, um, very briefly earlier on, it started a campaign uh, to highlight lesser known areas that are big on nature and charms of yesteryears. So some of the attractions are homestays with local residents and local fruit farms. And the authorities provided guidance to local operators on how to run their business uh, sustainably and to receive uh, tourists. Another example, Western Australia is doing a lot more to weave Aboriginal culture into tourism and to ensure that Aboriginal tr- businesses actually benefit from that, uh, that uh, from tourism. Um, and we know private sector players are also uh, uh, very committed uh, to this. So one um, example from my recent uh, trip to Sri Lanka, um, Ayu Nawal, uh, which is a Sri Lankan uh, luxury travel designer, it uses a lot of community community-based um, um, experience host in all of its programs. So these people are like your village heads, your teachers, farmers, housewives, uh, poets, uh, um, uh, architects, artists, uh, wildlife photographers, for, ex- for example. People who have grown up in Sri Lanka and can paint a very vivid picture of, of life in their destination. So they give it an added dimension to um, um, touring the, the, the country. It's not just um, um, stay in this luxury property and then you know dine at this restaurant, but a lot more um, layers of the destination to uncover. Yeah, I mean, and I think related to that is probably my next, um, my last choice, which is this kind of niching of tourism experiences. And, you know, for me as... Um, Adventure Travel Trade Association with that hat on, um, you know, I immediately think of adventure travel and how more and more people are getting into that and that so many different niches are springing up. Gary, when you and Wolfgang again were talking about China, you know, again, you were talking about how there are so many different niches within just China outbound travel. And I can see that really becoming more and more of a trend. I think there are special interest groups and you want to pursue that whilst you're traveling. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think niche, I 100% agree, Han. I think niching and, and special interest tourism is going to be very, very important. How much we actually spend all of our time doing those niche experiences is, is, is another issue, whether that's just going to be part of the trip, uh, you know, maybe one or two days, and then you go back and do your city tourism. I, I think we're still really waiting to see for those patterns to, to pan out. 
But you do, I mean, adventure tourism, I mean, adventure tourism is, is strong worldwide, I would say. I mean, you know more about this than me, Hannah, but it is important in China. The adventure tourism industry has grown from, from a quite a low base in recent years, really. But I guess I think also the, the type of adventure tourism in, in different countries is very different, as you know, Hannah. And, you know, how, how we actually niche niches is, is, is probably part of the challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Niching niches. On to your last pick then, Gary, and then number 15, so the last for the pod today. Um, and this is Southeast Asia's rail revolution. Will this spark a renaissance for overland travel? Tell us more. Well, let's hope so. I think, you know, we have seen a, a greater interest in rail travel in, in recent years, I would say. But, you know, the, the China-Laos train has been a huge success in Laos. The problem with building railways is they take so long, but the Laos train has become... Uh, a reason to travel uh, for people living in Laos has become a reason to visit the country um, that it didn't have before. I think it's today Bangkok has moved all its uh, regional railway services into a brand new station. So as from today, you know, if you're taking a train around the country, you go to this brand new station, uh, which is great news. And I, I'm pretty sure we'll see, we're seeing quite a lot of investment in Thailand in, in rail services over the coming years. And that's around the region as well. You know, there's a lot of talk about high-speed railway over the coming years, but those projects take time to, to develop. But, but train travel itself, I mean, I think that we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, Hannah, about the number of uh, Malaysians that were traveling into Thailand last year, and a lot of those were taking the train across the border. So, you know, it does seem that if, if extra services, more interesting routes, um, better quality of services are offered in Southeast Asia, um, I think the take-up will definitely be there. I think Japan and Korea and Taiwan, you know, they have leveraged their rail system to drive tourism deeper into their lands, and they are great uh, um, examples to follow. And and I think um, Southeast Asia could take a lead from from that. Um, through train travel, I feel that you know you could actually bring business deeper into the country, and therefore it, it answers your your, your requirement. Um, or your expectation that tra travel should benefit local communities, I think tra train travel is the one that you can leverage to do that, to achieve that. Um, there's also an um, environmental benefit, I think, um, Gary. Um, we know that traveling by train results in lower emissions compared to, to, to plane travel, for, for example. Yeah, 100% agree with that. And I think you know, the younger generation are very aware of that as well. They're very aware of their carbon footprint when they're traveling, uh, how much it means, particularly if you're going to take a flight domestically, would it be better to take the train? And if those services are available, um, Karen, I think I agree with you. I think, you know, you will see more take up on the basis of environmentalism, not just in terms of the convenience of your trip. Yeah, I would say just probably the infrastructure there, you know, in, in terms of booking and everything else needs to be at that same level of ease as it is uh, for booking a plane ticket, you know, and once it's at that, then I think it will, it will really take off. You know, in Europe, it is so easy to uh, book a train ticket. Um, it's, you know, a no-brainer. In Asia, you could argue, and particularly for the China-Laos Railway, that's incredibly difficult. At the moment, they've just launched an app, but even the app is quite difficult. It's difficult to reserve tickets, and there are a lot of issues around it. But once they've cracked that, um, yeah, I could see it really, really taking off. So... Well, with that 15, that brings us to the end of the show for this week. So thank you so much, Karen, um, for your inputs. It's been fun to uh, add another person to the mix for 2023. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. 
And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond. Bye.